Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit SugarHillChurch.com. Welcome to Sugar Hill Church. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, a couple of things going on around here I'd love for you to be a part of, and that is uh, next Sunday night, uh, we're going to gather for what we call around here the big night. So uh, there's children's programming, preschool programming. Um, preteen will be in the attic having an incredible time. They have a program they call LOL, where that's just 90 minutes of energy. So if you've got a fourth or fifth grader, they want to be there. And then our student ministry will be having uh, a, a very cool experience together. And then as adults, we're going to gather together and we have one of this rare opportunities when we're going to put men and women all together. And the topic that night, we have guests coming in that will totally rock your world. And I want to make sure that you don't miss next Sunday night. Uh, it costs you nothing. You don't have to bring food. You don't have, I mean, all you do is show up. And so I want to make sure you're a part of that. You'll see the details, times and everything in the handout you got on the way in today. And then also when you leave today on the glass straight out the back doors, there, you notice we, we weren't trying to fake create stained glass. There's a bunch of sticky notes out there. The small notes have individual items on it. Like it might be a can of corn. It might be a can of sweet potatoes, that kind of thing. You know, some of them have like a $15 Kroger card or Publix card or whatever. And then um, you get the big sticky note that has a whole meal and if you bought all this, it's probably about 30, 35 bucks. Uh, if you got really funky with the coupons, it's maybe about 27. All right. So what you do is you go grab a sticky note or a big sticky note or several sticky notes. And while you're buying your groceries this week, you buy that item, right? And then you bring it back to church. We put it in a bag and we're going to feed, uh, Chris or, or Thanksgiving week, the week before Thanksgiving, we're going to feed 200 families in our community with these needs. So if you'd grab those and be a part of it. Yeah, that's cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, um, if you're new to Sugar Hill Church and you're trying to figure out, okay, what, what kind of church are you? Then we're this kind of church. We really do believe that the Bible is our direction for life. We believe that God authored this from Genesis to maps and there's a rhyme and a reason, a purpose for which we ought to live according to this word. Now, if you believe that, then you also know the second part of what we believe. We believe that Jesus is a big deal. We want to make a big deal about Jesus. We want to honor him with everything we do. And if that's true, that means we want to serve people both around here and around the globe. That's why Bobby was in the Dominican Republic. That's why Craig and Diane and I are going to go with many of you to Haiti back again in December. That's that's why we have work going on in Kenya. That's why we're in Cuba. Uh, that's why we pack backpacks for children at two or three schools, and we can just go on and on and on because we believe Jesus is a big deal. And that's part of our teaching today is this tipping point that all of us seem to be on this on this journey to try to figure out how do I become successful? How do I how do I get over the top of the hill? How do I become something that's that's relevant? How do I make a difference? And if you go to Barnes and Noble or you look at Amazon.com, there are hundreds of ways where you can find four, five, seven, eight, ten, or even thirteen steps that you can take to find true joy and happiness. Because everybody's got a plan for your life, don't they? But we've got to find our own tipping point to get where we ought to be, where God wants us to be. Last week, we talked about the choice to be happy. This week, we want to talk about the choice to live a gracious life. Now, that seems to be something that is lost on many of us in the good old U.S. of A. I mean, uh, sometime this week, you were probably on 985 doing about 75 miles an hour. And about that time, you saw all those Georgia State Patrol officers lined up across there. And one of them probably pulled one of you over and you weren't so gracious. 
or you were in the left-hand lane, you knew that the Georgia State Patrol officers were there and a guy doing about 85 pulled up behind you and you were doing 70 and he was about six inches off your bumper and you waved to him in a not so gracious manner. And you weren't saying we're number one. Maybe somebody cut in front of line at Walmart when you were thinking you were going to be first there and you just got ticked off. Jenny can tell you stuff like that has a, has a tendency to wear me out. Let me just say to you, I am not immune to this. I have to make a conscious choice to attempt to live graciously. Often and often I fail. Is anybody with me? I mean, do you, are you ever, you ever there where it's just, it is so much easier to say live a gracious life than it is to actually do it, right? Especially when, when, like, when you order at the restaurant and your food comes back and it's not what you imagined, uh, you know? And then you kind of unload on your, that waitress and you realize, wait a minute, it's Sunday. I just left church and she's got four other tables full of church people just like me. No wonder it came back wrong, right? And so we struggle with this concept that maybe we've lost our graciousness in this constantly hurried life. We've lost our graciousness hidden behind IMs and Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram. And, and we somehow we've lost it hiding behind a keyboard. And we, we, we've just lost the art of living graciously. I read a book this week that kind of rocked me a little bit. And the, uh, the name of the book is Why Nobody Wants to Go to Church Anymore. Now, this is not the kind of book that preachers read to get excited. Why nobody goes to church anymore, right? Because across America, there is a rapidly declining number of people going to church. And, and so you, it's, it's a research study that tries to figure out why don't people go to church anymore? And they found these four big ahas as to why that happened. So 87% of Americans labeled Christians or church people as judgmental. I notice that none of you are shocked by that. All right. So let me, let me ask you a question. How many of you would consider Christians at large and church people in particular judgmental? Okay. How many of you wanted to raise your hand, but you're afraid you're going to be judged by it? Okay. See, you, you, you get my point, right? Well, um, fair or unfair, most folks view the church as critical, disapproving and condemning, whether it's behavior or looks or clothes or choice of lifestyle or, or the decisions you made or, you know, the, the church has a solid reputation for acting as judge and jury over individual differences. We really do. I mean, because in our mind, you know what happened? We, we came to church a place that's supposed to be the most welcoming, warm, friendly, safe place on the planet. And then we decided everybody was supposed to be like us. Can you imagine a world full of Chuck? (laughs) That's just not good. You know, I mean, really, that is just not a good thing. I mean, I, I think of a world full of Reuben down here, you know? I mean, I think, do we really need that many disciplinarians in the world? You know, I mean, really, I think, I think, do we need a whole world full of Ann Mulligans? I mean, do we need that many artsy people in the world? No, no, no. But we have this way of looking and judging people. Let me ask you a question. How many have ever walked into church or some other place and felt judged? Yeah. Yeah, it stinks, doesn't it? Has it ever occurred to you that when we walk into church, there always seems to be somebody that's judging us. and There always to be somebody we're judging. And could I say to you, that's not the way Jesus built his church. That's somehow how we made it. 
But we've got to make a conscious choice to move beyond it. Secondly, the majority of those surveyed in this book said that they didn't want to be lectured, but rather they wanted to be a part of the dialogue, the discussion. And could I just say to you, I don't blame them. I really don't. In, in, in my little community group where we meet over at the Cartwright's house on Wednesday night, uh, it, is, it is dialogue all night long. It is discussion, open discussion about the ways and the things of God. And you know what I see? I see people growing and learning because they are a part of the discussion. You know, let me just be honest with you. The last thing this world needs is more preachers to be a sage on the stage and tell you how you ought to live. Because could I just be honest? My life is as messed up as yours. I mean, truly, it is. I, I, well, I know I'm supposed to give you this, this great wisdom from on high, but I gotta, this is the wisdom, not this. This is. And you see, when we together choose that we're going to live in this, then together we become more like him. And when I choose that I become judge and jury, then I become less like him. And that's why John the Baptist said, there needs to be less and less of us and more and more of him. And by the way, Jesus said of that man who made that statement, that's the greatest man that ever has been born. You look at that and you say, wow. The third thing that this book pointed out that, and here's something that shouldn't shock any of us, and that is that the church is full of hypocrites. Well, no joke. I mean, just look around at the people sitting next to you. I mean, we're sitting in a room filled with liars, cheats, and thieves. And you say, Chuck, how dare you? Well, just think of your last week. You know what I know? This church is full of hypocrites. I know that because your pastor's one. I mean, if you put a camera on me 24-7, first of all, it'd be ugly, all right? But you know, the second thing you'd realize is that dude is a hypocrite. And if I followed you 24-7, you know what I'd find out? You're messed up too. Let's go have dinner. You know how I know that? If you could find a perfect church, you'd run and join it. And the minute you did, you'd screw it up too. Because we're just imperfect people led by imperfect people trying to grow to love a very perfect God. And you see, when we see that, we get to this recognition of what Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. And by the way, there's no immunity here. That's all of us. And then we get to that fourth kind of aha from this book, and it's this, that your God is irrelevant to my life, but I'd like to know that there is a God and he cares about me. You know what I believe people desperately want to know? That God loves me and God is always good. That God loves me and God is always good. You see, I fear what happens in the church is we water down the goodness and the power of God so much because we want people to come into the doors that we want to say all the nice things to make people come back inside. But that's not the goal of the church. The goal isn't to have more people in the church. The goal is that we might act like Jesus more outside the church. And so with that being the case, I think it's time to stop trying to ask God for little things and plead with God to do something extraordinary among us. That God might show up and do something and totally revamp your marriage, your relationship, your children. That he might totally show up and radically change the nature of this place that we call church. So the answer, how do you deal with all four of those things, is we deal with them with 
graciousness. You can't be gracious unless you're grace-filled. And you can't be grace-filled until you allow Jesus to be in control of your life. Because here's what happens. Here we are in our mess, making a mess of our life. According to Romans 3.23, we've all sinned, we've all messed up. God looks at us, at our creation, and said, wow, how could they have messed it up this badly? But I love you, so I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to allow him to take the punishment you deserve because of your sin. Then you get to choose, do I want Jesus to forgive me my sin? And if so, he will do so, and he'll give me heaven, and he'll give me hope for today, and I can live filled with grace. You see, there's nothing we can do to earn that. There's nothing we can do to buy that. It's a gift, grace. We don't deserve it. Grace came in and all of a sudden, wow, we can be right with God. We are grace-filled people, but grace-filled people act graciously. Uh Uh-oh. You say, well, Chuck, clearly you didn't see me in line at Walmart this week when that guy cut in front of me or that lady didn't give me the sale price or clearly I didn't act that way when I was on the phone with AT&T for 74 minutes waiting for someone to tell me that my call was very important to them. So to the point about being judgmental, my proposal would be that we would have at this church at Sugar Hill Church, a model of radical hospitality. Radical hospitality. You know what radical hospitality is? It says to anybody and everybody, welcome home, you're safe, and you are loved here. If they don't look like you, welcome home. If they don't dress like you, welcome home. If their skin is not the same color as yours, welcome home. If they don't believe the same thing you believe, welcome home. If they're an Alabama fan, reconsider. You were listening. How cool is that? (laughs) But now, what what if we were to practice radical hospitality? Do you know how strange that is in our world? Aren't aren't you captivated by when people are actually gracious to you? Don't you? Wow, they were nice. How'd that happen? I mean, it just blows me away because I don't expect people to be nice. To the point of joining in the dialogue. What if we were to continue to invest in community groups and growth groups where we let people know this isn't our job to tell you what to think. This is our job to cause you to think that you might have a defense of your faith, that you might know why you believe rather than telling the world what I believe, because it's not my job to tell you that this is how you are to believe. This is to give you a hunger that you might want to long to believe. Join that dialogue. As to being hypocrites, well, I I wish there were a pill for that one. I'd take it. But I would propose that we place a ban on fake church faces at church from now on. That, That when life isn't fair and it has been difficult, don't show up and put your Sunday face on and smile and say, it's so good. God bless you. I hate my husband, but God bless you. My, my kids, if I could, I'd kill them right now. Bless your heart. Could we just stop all that? I mean, why, why not just show up and be the wonderful you that God's created? I mean, why not? I mean, because see, we're not all like Ron. I mean, like, uh, Ron, it's a great day to love Jesus, Chuck. I walked in this morning and said, how come this isn't like this? And how come that isn't like, what? You know, be gracious, Chuck, be gracious. And finally, as to the desire of experiencing a real and a tangible God, let's stop expecting little from God. He is a big, wondrous, awesome God. Let us pray that he would do what only the divine could do. 
Let us be those people. You say, well, Chuck, how do we deal with these four problems? Well, I believe I want to propose four solutions requiring one big prerequisite, and that is gracious living. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. In Luke, chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, if you don't have your Bibles, the, the, the words will be on the screen. And beginning in verse 37, Jesus teaches this, this very poignant and, and very specific teaching. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Okay, now that sounds simple, doesn't it? Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You know what I like to do? I like to find fault with other people. As a matter of fact, I like to deflect when I'm wrong so that somebody else can take the blame. Do you do that? I mean, I, I'm, matter of fact, I'm good at it. Some of my clothes, they may be big, but they are made of Teflon. I mean, I mean, the egg just slides off and hits somebody else in the face. And you know, the challenge to this is that that's not what gracious living looks like. In verse 37, we realize gracious living is characterized by non-judgmentalism. I mean, it's by the acceptance of other, by forgiveness, by giving of oneself to others. It's, it's interesting enough, the description given here in the Bible of gracious living sounds similar to what the Apostle Paul said about love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind and patient, never jealous, boastful, proud, or rude. Love isn't selfish or quick-tempered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs that others do. Love rejoices in the truth, but not in evil. Love is always supportive, loyal, hopeful, trusting. Love never fails. And you look at that and you say, wait a minute, here's the juxtaposition. Here am I, here is God. His grace should fill my life to such a degree that it flows out of my life so that I can now live gracefully. How is that? I can't be gracious apart from having the one who extends grace. I can't be gracious, I can't live a gracious life without Christ. I had a fellow ask me this week, he said, isn't being a good guy good? Doesn't it count for anything anymore? I mean, doesn't it count for anything to be a good guy? And you know what I would say? It counts for something to be a good guy, but it totally counts for good when a good guy meets grace and grace has washed over him and what he's extending isn't his goodness, but the grace of God. Now that is a grace-filled life. That's a gracious life. There's a peace in graceful living. I mean, the person who chooses to live graciously doesn't go about looking for faults in others and trying to analyze their motives. I mean, the person living a graceful life doesn't find what's wrong with everything. They don't overanalyze everything. They see it and they accept it and they don't endorse it always, but they do learn to love it. There were these three guys that were hunting out in the Canadian wilderness, an engineer, a psychologist, and a preacher. Now there's a group. And they were out and they were hunting and it was cold and they ran across a cabin in the woods and they wanted to get in and get warmth. And they knocked on the door and nobody came to the door. Finally, they just reached down and opened the knob and they walked in. And when they walked in, in the middle of this big one-room cabin was a big hot belly iron stove hanging in the middle of the air. Literally, it had, it, 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 had, it had this chain that was holding it in the middle of the air. 
And so the engineer looked at it and said, my, my, what a feat. He has realized the rule of thermodynamics and realized he can redistribute the heat perfectly in this room by suspending it from those chains. What's quite a feat? The psychologist, of course, being very bright, said, no, 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 no. No, he has suspended that so that he can curl up underneath the heat of that in a fetal position, returning to the womb of his mother in the safety and comfort and care. What? And then the preacher, no, my fair brothers, lifting high. The beauty of flame has always been an act of worship and adoration. And about that time, the hunter that owned the, the, the cabin walked in and they couldn't help it. They said, why have you put the potbelly stove suspending in the air from those chains? And he said, oh, that's simple. I had more chain than I had stovepipe. <laughs> Some of y'all about two o'clock are going to go, oh, that's funny. <laughs> you know, sometimes we just make a bigger deal of things than they are, don't we? We see somebody who just thinks a little differently. Oh! <gasps> We see somebody who's dressed a little funky. And you know what we realize? God is always good and God always loves them. You know what he calls us to do as the church? To always be there for them and to always love them. You think about that and you say, you know, well, Chuck, what what else about this? Well, I believe there's a benefit to gracious living as well. Jesus said, if we're not judged, then others won't judge us. If If we're accepting, others will accept us. He said, if we're forgiving toward others, they'll forgive us. If we give of ourselves to others, then they'll give back in kind. You see, it's a divine law that our blessing will be consistent with our graciousness. If you want to look at America and say, what in the world is going on in our world today? We have lost the art of graciousness. And by the way, we Protestant people, we're still holding up signs protesting things instead of loving things. Could I just call a halt to the silliness of protesting everything and just finding a way to love people? You see, I look at this and I think, Man, why wouldn't we give our best so that we could get the best? Chinese farmers years ago would take the large potatoes from their farm and they would keep the best potatoes and eat them. And they'd plant the small potatoes so that they could be seedlings to grow more potatoes. And over about a decade, what they realized was as long as they kept planting small potatoes, they kept growing smaller potatoes. And after about a decade and a half, the potatoes were the size of a pea. And they didn't have anything to eat until somebody came along and with great skill in agriculture said, you're going about this the wrong way. If you'd eat the smaller and give away the bigger, you'll have bigger potatoes. And they did. And their potatoes grew in size because what they did is they realized the benefit of sowing a seed for something that was greater. You know what I've realized? Judge not and you won't be judged. By the way, You say, well, Chuck, that can't be true. I I try to live a gracious life and I get hurt. You know what Jerry Falwell said one time? If you're leading something, you're going to wake up hurting. If you serve hurting people, sooner or later, they're going to say something that's going to hurt you. But you know what's amazing? The Holy Spirit of God reaches down and pats you on the back and says, that's my boy, that's my girl. And that beats anything or any praise that any man or woman will ever offer you. You say, well, Chuck, that's great. I've gotten big grace, so I ought to share big grace, and then I receive big grace. I live graciously, I receive graciousness. But there's a cost to gracious living. 
I mean, what's required if I'm going to live the gracious life that Christ calls me to? I believe it starts with an awareness of my own faults. You know, don't we love to find fault with somebody else? I mean, isn't that a, that's just fun, you know? I mean, there's Vic down there. Let's pick on Vic. There's got to be something wrong with Vic. I mean, good night. It's Vic, right? And the Bible says, as long as I keep finding fault with Vic, I see the splinter in his eye. Meanwhile, I got a tube of four sticking out of mine. You know, the, the answer to the question is, you know how we solve that? Stop telling everybody else how they ought to clean their bathroom and go clean yours. You say, well, Chuck, wait a minute, that's, that's, that doesn't sound gracious. You know what is gracious? When you recognize you don't have all the answers, but Christ does, and you offer nothing to this world that's good but Him, and the only good that we truly offer this world is the presence of Christ at work within us, because that is grace that is overflowing, and now it is graciousness, not in my power, but in His, because I recognize we are messed up people. Let's stop finding what's wrong with everybody else. It's kind of like at the Redstone Arsenal in Alabama. This colonel showed up for an inspection. He ever lined up and he walked by and he saw this one, one trooper and he said, Hey boy, button that up right now. That trooper scared to death. He looked at that colonel and he said, You really want me to do that right now? Button it up right now. Yes, sir. He reached up and he buttoned that colonel's button, put his hands back down and said, Yes, sir. Maybe, maybe we ought to button our own buttons every now and then instead of worrying about everybody else's. What if we were to be filled with grace enough so that we'd have enough to extend? We need to check our pockets before we can help others button theirs. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ Jesus. Finally, I believe we ought to have a passion for gracious living, and I believe we can because the motive in living graciously with others is that we learn to do so. We're becoming more like Him. In John chapter 3, verse 13, the message has this really neat translation that says, God didn't go to all the trouble of sending His Son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Therefore, the life of Jesus was the one that was demonstrated through the love and the grace of God to others. We're called to be the same way in our relationships with each other. The world today is turned off by Christians who simply can't get along, and all we want to do is tell everybody else how they're wrong. The world's sick of Christians and church folks who bicker and fight and demand their own way and who won't forgive and who won't reconcile, even if it means that church is split and people go an entire life without knowing the joy and the peace found in a relationship with Jesus. There's nothing grace-filled about that. There's nothing gracious about that. The world sees the hypocrisy of such living, of, of such living by folks like, like that who profo- profess to follow Jesus. And why can't we recognize that? I mean, the wonderful thing about God is that He never calls us to do something that He, by His grace, won't enable us to do. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse eight says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, that you may abound in every good work. Translated to the message, it says, God can pour on the blessings 
in astonishing ways so that you're ready for anything and everything more than just ready to do what needs to be done. She was number 66730 in a German concentration camp where her father and her sister had already been killed. She knew the humiliation of having been stripped and stand in front of Nazi guards and stand in those humiliating cold showers. And she saw the death of the people all around her and she knew the horror and the pain that had been inflicted upon her people. They had robbed her of everything she possessed, but they couldn't rob her of the one who possessed her, Jesus. She saw every day in Ravensbrook as a chance to minister to someone who needed Jesus more than anything, and they were needy more than herself. And then one day, miraculously and wonderfully, she was released. And suddenly, as she became a prisoner, she was freed, and her solitary aim was, how do I help other people? And when the war was over, she began traveling and sharing with the world what Jesus Christ, the Savior, had meant in her and the vision that he had given her and the forgiveness that needed to take place around the world after World War II. And then one day, something happened, something that shook her to the very core of her being down into the very crevices of her bone into the marrow. So why don't I let her tell you this in her own words, and I'll quote. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister's pain, her blanched faith, soon to be dead. He came up to me as the church was emptying then, beaming and bowing, and he said, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. He said, to think as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. And Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. And I tried to smile. I tried and struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silence prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive this man. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while into my heart there sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that this world's hinging hinges but on His. When He tells us to love our enemies, He gives along with the command, the love and the grace needed itself. With love, Corey Tinbo. That, my friend, is gracious living. May we be a people that would say, Lord Jesus, give me the ability to live with grace this day. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we're grateful for your goodness and your joy. Lord, would you give us a love that is beyond any comparison, that is extravagant, cause us to live this life full of your grace, pouring out from us 
And may the world know us as a gracious people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen, amen, and amen.